Well, hello, friends. Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, be with you. Welcome to Sermons from the Mount podcast. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill. I currently serve as the pastor of Mount Olivet United Methodist Church in Manio, North Carolina. Each week, we will post here audio recordings of the sermons that I preach from that church. Hope this one is a blessing to you. God bless. Take care. text this morning comes from the Gospel of John. We are in the seventh chapter, and we're going to take a look at verses 37 through 39. Again, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through says, on the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. My friends, this is the word of God for you and I, the children of God. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, last week I mentioned to you that as I was coming of age as a sports fan in the early to mid-80s, that Larry Bird was my favorite basketball player. If you were not here last week, Larry Bird was my favorite basketball player growing up in the early to mid-80s. And he still is, truthfully. But friends, basketball is not my favorite sport. Baseball is. Always has been. Absolutely. I grew up in a baseball family. All the men in my family loved baseball. The men in my family played baseball. There were any number of Saturdays that began with the question, hey, do you want to go hit some? by my dad or my uncle. In fact, one summer uh, when I was in college, the entire infield of our church softball team was my dad at third base, an uncle at shortstop, me at second base, and another uncle on first base. <laughs> that was the entire infield. Baseball is my favorite sport, my favorite team, then now and always is the Atlanta Braves. I think part of it was our proximity to them. This was before the Nationals existed. I think also the fact they were always on television, on Superstation TBS, particularly on Saturdays, right before I watched wrestling at 6.05, the Braves were always on. <laughs> and so in the summer of 1983, instead of our typical summer trip down to Myrtle Beach, Mom and Dad decided they would take my sister and I, along with my uncle and aunt and two cousins, down to Atlanta Spent a few days there to go to Six Flags over Georgia, but also to see a couple of games at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. So it was on a warm summer morning. We packed into Mom and Dad's Monte Carlo, and we headed down south. Now, the plan was this. We were going to stay at a hotel known as the Stadium Hotel that was located right across the street from the ballpark. What we did not know at the time was that the hotel's name had actually changed. The Stadium Hotel no longer existed. It was now a Ramada Inn. 
So we got to Atlanta, and there was no stadium hotel to be found. Now understand, this is before the internet, this is before Google Maps, this is before a cell phone existed. Dad's directions were written down on a piece of notebook paper. So if you needed help, your option was to stop, park, and go into a building and talk to somebody <laughs> and ask them directions. Now, Dad, however, decided that the better, better route was to drive around and around and around <laughs> downtown Atlanta trying to find this hotel. Now, how many of you here have ever seen European vacation? <laughs> so you know when Clark Griswold gets stuck in a roundabout and he can't get out of it? That was us in downtown Atlanta. Around and around and around. So around we went, seeing the same things over and over again. And so while mom and dad in the front seat discussed <laughs> the merits of dad's current plan, my sister and I looked out the window at the scenery, and one of the scenes that we passed over and over and over again that really caught my attention was the fact that some of these kids had opened a fire hydrant, oh and water was gushing out into the street, and they were playing in this water. This is strange to me. That's not how it was where I grew up. Maybe you did, but when we were hot, somebody turned the garden hose on you. And you hope the hose hadn't been sitting in the sun for too long because sometimes that water that first came out wasn't very refreshing. But we sprayed the hose. Or you sat under a shade tree with a popsicle. That's how you got refreshed. But here on a hot summer day in a major city, I saw children flocking into the street as that fire hydrant was let loose, showering the street and everyone near it with its cool, refreshing relief showering the entire street and everyone in it with its cool, refreshing relief. Now, I thought about that scene and those kids this week as I read our text for this morning. And I wonder, is that the sort of sense that we're supposed to have about the streams of living water that the Holy Spirit makes possible in our lives? It's a blessing to ourselves and a relief to others. Or in other words, is that open fire hydrant a metaphor of what the Holy Spirit can do both for us and through us? Now today we celebrate Pentecost. And most oftentimes we associate Pentecost with flames of fire. As Allison read out of Acts chapter 2 the fiery tongues descending upon the disciples and hovering over them. But this morning in our gospel reading, John wants us to think about Pentecost with a different kind of image, that being the image of water. You see, for John, Pentecost is a time to see prophecy fulfilled and rivers of living water flowing out from the temple, through the disciples, and into the world. But in order to show us this, John takes us to another feast. Our first verse tells us that it was the last day of the festival. So for us, it should ask the question, well, what festival? The last day of what festival? It's not the Feast of Pentecost, but he's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, right? When God's people would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the final harvest of the year. Now, I read this week that some biblical scholars have discovered that 
at these festivals were the opportunities to buy souvenirs. And the souvenir most often associated with this particular festival was a water jar. Now, to me, that seems strange. Why a water jar? I mean, this feast is celebrating the in-gathering of the final harvest for the year. The worshipers built and lived in Zeus for a whole week, and they remembered God's sustenance through the wilderness wanderings, and by celebrating the yearly harvest, they recalled God's gift of food for the past year. It would be similar for us celebrating Thanksgiving, giving thanks for all that God has given us the past year and asking for more favor the upcoming year. So our souvenir would probably be what, a cornucopia? or a basket of harvested goods. But here's a water jar. Again, why a water jar? Well, here's why. As part of this festival, at the time of the morning sacrifice, the priest would leave the temple, walk to the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed a blind man, and would fill a pitcher of water out of that pool. Then he would carry this pitcher back through the streets until they came to the temple to the place of sacrifice. Then they would then pour that water as the trumpet sounded and the people all sang together, Therefore, with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. You see, what they're celebrating here was what occurred in the book of Numbers when the people in the wilderness were thirsty. And they complained on God. They wanted their thirst to be quenched. So God told Moses, what? Strike the rock at Meribah. And water would come pouring out. And so in a nutshell, what this festival was doing was it was helping people remember God's providence, both in the past and in the present, to remember that God's presence was a real thing among them, and to pray that God would continue to provide for them the living water they needed to sustain their crops and their harvest for the year ahead. And so that's why they use a little water jar, because it symbolized God's providence to keep them full, to help quench their thirst, and to keep them living for the rest of the following year. Now, this is the festival where Jesus starts to speak. And so what Jesus does through his words is he gives us an even greater mystery. Over and above Moses striking that rock at Meribah, Jesus now is talking about living water. And just as God raised up a prophet to strike a rock and bring forth water in the desert, so now God is lifting up Jesus to bring forth living water to his people. And so what Jesus shouts to those that have gathered here on this day is the same message he gave to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. I have your living waters. You need not thirst anymore. And so what that should do, friends, is present us with a couple of questions. First is, how do I get this living water? What is it that I need to do to access it? And then two, how do I make sure that those living waters don't dry up? Now I want you to notice who Jesus says can come to him. He says anyone. Anyone. There does not at first glance seem to appear to be any qualifiers. There's no entrance exams. There's no application to be considered. There's no list of hoops to jump through. J.C. Ryle writes, what is promised here is not a special blessing for the spiritual elite, but a fullness of blessing for every believer. But friends, I want us to be careful. 
Because as much as I'd love to tell you there's nothing you have to do to receive this blessing of living water, there actually is one. You got to know that you're thirsty. And you got to believe in Jesus as the cure. Now, obviously, I'm talking about a thirst with a spiritual meaning. I'm talking about a thirst of a purely spiritual kind. It means anxiety of soul, conviction of sin, desire for pardon, longing after peace of conscience. When we feel our sins and we want forgiveness, when we are deeply sensitive to our soul's need and we earnestly desire for help and relief, well, friends, that's when we are in the state of mind that Jesus is talking about this morning when he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. My friends, are you so thirsty? Because such thirst is unfortunately not well known in our world. We all ought to feel it. We are all sinful, mortal, dying creatures with souls that will one day be judged. And we will all spend eternity either in heaven or hell. So friends, all of us, all of us should thirst after salvation. Yet we thirst for everything except salvation. Money, pleasure, honor, status, self-indulgence. But friends, happiness begins when we come to know this spiritual thirst. The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Until we know that we are lost, we cannot be saved. The first step towards heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. And here stands Jesus, calling to us, offering to save each and every one of us, should we simply acknowledge our thirst and come to him for refreshment. Friends, with such a clear invitation to come and drink, why is it that so many of us prefer to stay thirsty and die? All who come to Christ by faith will find in him abundant satisfaction. You will be fulfilled. You can ask anyone who has come to an honest and earnest and fervent abiding faith in Christ. Then they'll tell you, my friends, or you can just listen to me. I'll be completely honest with you. When I came to Christ by faith, I found in him much more than I ever expected. I have tasted peace and hope and comfort. I have found grace according to my need and strength according to my days, as they say. I have been disappointed in myself at times. And I have been disappointed in others on other occasions. But friends, I have never, ever, ever been disappointed in Christ. But I only got to that point. When I acknowledged my thirst and came to him for satisfaction. Are you thirsty? Acknowledge it and believe in Jesus for satisfaction and salvation. Friends, come to him. Because he is there for you. Now, such work is a mystery, and this only happens by grace. As we come to worship, sure, we are aware of our sins, and we sense our needs, and hardened and empty, we come to Christ. 
God's grace always gives us more than we expect. God has a way of breaking open our hardened hearts. He fills our lives with his refreshing spirit, but then we see his work overflow. You see, his grace is more than just a temporary transaction fixing the problems of the past. It's an eternal investment breaking open our lives to be ever-flowing streams of life-giving water for the world, satisfying us the same way that open fire hydrant was satisfying those kids so many years ago in Atlanta. Which brings us to the second question. Once we acknowledge our thirst and come to Jesus for refreshment, how do we prevent those living waters from drying up? St. Augustine wrote this, the Lord therefore cries aloud to us to come and drink if we are thirsty within. And he says that when we have drunk, rivers of living water will flow from our heart. What is the river that flows from the heart of the inner man? The love of his neighbor. For if he thinks that what he drinks ought to only satisfy himself, there is no living water flowing from his heart. But if he does good to his neighbor, the stream is not dried up, but flows. If he does good to his neighbor, the stream is not dried up, but flows. Friends, in our text, Jesus, the high priest, has come to Jerusalem, but he is not carrying a jar of water from the pool to the temple. He moves from the temple to the streets with thousands of water jars for a thirsty world. And those thousands of water jars for a thirsty world are you and me. God's people are water jars filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will use us to provide an abundant source of living water for this thirsty, thirsty world. Friends, this is our call. This is our obligation. Once we acknowledge our thirst and come to Jesus in faith for forgiveness, satisfaction, and salvation, and we open ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, friends, we cannot hoard it. We can't keep it to ourselves. If we truly believe, if we truly believe, the test is whether we allow the overflow to be poured out to everybody that is outside of these walls. Are we doing it? Are we doing good to our neighbor? That's what Jesus says, isn't it? Verse 38, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Shall flow. Not maybe. Not possibly. Not could be. Shall flow. Much like that fire hydrant in Atlanta was a blessing for the individual and satisfaction for all that were there. Are you a believer? And from your heart should come love for your neighbor. And if you have no love for your neighbor, then are you really a believer? Are you thirsty? Friends, all of this is captured in Jesus' loud shout to anyone who is thirsty. Into the masses gathered in Jerusalem, he proclaims the good news of what is to come. The fact that God is always going to be with us. That the Holy Spirit is going to come, the giver of life and power and blessing. And we need to be reminded of this. 
to remember the kind of Holy Spirit that is indwelling among us and within us. It isn't just the flashy events of long ago with people speaking in tongues and mass conversions happening. Friends, the Holy Spirit is constantly at work, sustaining us, providing for us, blessing us, and keeping us from our very most inward parts to our very most public lives. Our connection to God, to God's goodness and love and mercy and any other attribute that you want to name, never runs dry so long as we acknowledge our thirst, believe in Christ Jesus, and love our neighbor. Friends, we have God's very self, infinite and yet right here, if we just believe. Are you thirsty, friend? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, God bless. Take care.